and welcome to Panorama. My name is Sarah Robertson, and I'm here with my co-host Dan Torres, and our guest today is Jerry Lund. He is the chair of the Franklin Regional Council of Governments Planning Board and a board member of the Community Health Center of Franklin County and a member of the Opioid Task Force. Is that everything, Jerry? That is. Thanks. And today we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about um, housing in Franklin County and the implications that it has on community health. Jerry, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into your role doing advocacy around housing and um, other services in the area? Oh, certainly. Um, so um, I guess a little bit of the history here. So I have uh, been involved with the opioid task force of Franklin County in the North Quadrant region, which is, of course, headquartered in Greenfield, since it began in 2014, or well, 13, actually. And I have probably the greatest motiva- mo- mo- motivation was the fact that we have uh, opiate addiction in my family. Um, I have a 29, almost 30-year-old daughter who's been struggling since she was 14 years old with uh, first alcohol, then pills, and then with opiates. So um, it brought it home for me and, and my late wife, who is a t- physician, who's now passed, but Katie, her name, um, this 30-year-old woman is, is um, still struggling. So I have made it my task and my commitment to involve myself with the Opioid Task Force and contribute from the standpoint of a family member to the discussions, to the strategies, to the community meetings, to all the discussion from the standpoint of a family uh, who's still struggling with this issue. I'm sorry that you and your family have been struggling with that. And, and in your experience, when someone is trying to like get back on their feet and get back in society, what are the barriers that people face who have, say, struggled with addiction? Well, that's a huge question, and it's pretty. It, it, there's a lot of commonalities, but it's also idiosyncratic. Each each family and each person in the family has their own unique story, like we all we all realize. But I, in general, I would say the 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 main issues revolve around addiction as a disease. It's a disease that's a a uh, relapsing, recurrent, um, potentially fatal disease that rewires the brain. It's not known until the last, you know, I don't know, 20 years, just how profound the use of opiates readjusts the brain and its neuroreceptors to uh, accommodate uh, getting high. It's important people, though, for people that don't know much about the situation to understand that for, for most longer-term opiate-addicted folks, they use basically to keep from getting dope sick more than they use to get high. Uh, that's an important distinction. And I'll just say that dope sickness is the way the body um, accommodates to high levels of, of, of opiates. Um, it raises the threshold each time you take a, a drug it, it runs the threshold higher and higher. And then if the brain doesn't get what it needs, it will send a, a signal that says, ouch, I feel terrible. You get dope sick. It's like 13 flus on top of each other. So, so in other words, t- to keep from getting really sick, people use. My daughter is a good example. She doesn't really get high anymore and hasn't for years. She's trying to keep from getting dope sick and continuing to use for that reason. So that's, that's a kind of a unique thing with, with the opiate use. So what are the obstacles? There, there's a couple of main contributing factors. One is the way that uh, an addiction, opiate addiction, attacks a person's personality. 
Uh, it makes them feel less and less worthy of anything. It, 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 the overall stigma in our society makes them feel like they're not as good as anybody else. They're looked down upon, they're discriminated against in all sorts of ways. So self-image is a huge e. Um, I've seen that in my daughter. She was a young woman who had a great, had a lot going for her, but her self-image has, has pretty much kind of vanished in a lot of ways. So she's very sensitive to prejudicial language, to, to issues with um, being seen. Um, so so it's, it's a very, there, there are a raft of obstacles. And I will mention one other thing, that um, because of the instability for users, the issue of finding a place to live, a, playing, a place that's safe, a place that they can feel at home, or at least mostly at home, is a real difficult hurdle to overcome. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Can you talk a little bit about opiate crisis locally, more broadly here in Massachusetts and throughout the United States? Yes, I will. The, I just yesterday uh, saw some data on uh, Massachusetts statistics for opiate use disorder. For the past 12 months, um, the number of fatal ODs uh, in the Massachusetts has gone about eight, gone up about 8.8 percent. For that number is actually 2,290 people in the last 12 months. Uh, along with that, fentanyl, the Essentially, the opiate was found in about 93% of those, of those fatal ODs. Um, cocaine, by the way, was found in about half of them, about 51%. The newest threat, I'll just add, is designer, what people are calling designer benzodiazepines. It's called benzodope. An example is something called bromazolam, or broma on the street. The benzos are, are essentially used to accelerate and intensify the high. Uh, there are also, of course, well-known drugs in terms of issues with, with uh, depression. So there's a lot going on. Th those stats, by the way, are from um, high-intensity drug trafficking areas, HIDTA um, data. And with your work on the Opioid Task Force, you are working to kind of address these issues from different angles. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, sure. I mean, there's there's much to explain, but just a few things. So the Opioid Task Force essentially has partitioned itself into sort of five working committees, five stand, standing committees. They involve things from Treatment and Recovery Committee, the Healthcare Solutions Committee, the Housing and Workforce Development, so all, Development Committee, Public Safety and Justice Committee. So there's, there's a lot going on. And the reason that we did this... Um, it's not the way we started. <laughs> we started just dealing with the issues of what we saw as the beginnings of the opiate epidemic. But all these things get wrapped up into the struggle for folks with opiate addiction. So we have to deal with all these different elements. It's a large coalition of folks. We have about 130 or so folks who are regular uh, attendees at all these different committee meetings. And the staff has built itself up now to around f to five people. We're getting some turnover now, but I think we'll go, probably go back up to, go up to six. So there's a lot going on in Franklin County on this issue. I have to say that we've made quite a dent and quite an impression in terms of the whole movement to deal with opioid addiction in our state. A lot of the folks in Eastern Mass 
have learned from us, um, have been part of some of our meetings, and we have not only learned from them, but they have from us, in particular with regard to, to treatment in carceral situations. The Franklin County House of Correction is actually one of the best treatment facilities in Franklin County. Thanks to the hard work of Dr. Ruth Potee, who's kind of a rock star in addiction medicine, she has, uh, on her own, in association with Sheriff Donlan, who runs the the jail, the House of Correction in Franklin County. It took her over a year with all the hoops she had to jump through to get on-site in the jail a methadone facility. Understand that almost all jails, nearly all jails, had none of them had methadone treatment facilities until fairly recently. And we're the only one, we were really one of the two in the country that, that set up uh, an in, in-house methadone facility that was not run by an outside contractor. It's a locally operated and run place. So that's, that's a big, ch- big change. Ruth also has been involved in uh, the methadone treatment for uh, BHN um, and helped set up the Community Health Center of Franklin County's new methadone site in Orange, on the, on the border of Orange and Athol in eastern Franklin County. Uh, that was a methadone desert until, uh, until a couple of months ago when it opened. Um, people in that area, in the Athol Orange area, had a choice to get to a daily methadone treatment facility of dri- driving 40 miles one way east or 40 miles west on Route 2 to get treated every day. Mm. So that was a huge thing. Um, things have changed a bit now with the, with the COVID crisis. Um, some of the rules have changed, and so now people are in, in methadone facilities are able to get take-homes often two to three days, as much as a week or even two weeks. So that's, that's been a huge and positive change in terms of Medicaid-assisted treatment. The, and the other one, of course, is, is buprenorphine, um, which is also called Suboxone. That is much more available, but it also turns out to be not quite as effective. The stats show, the, the science shows that the gold, gold standard is still methadone treatment. And thank you for that, Jerry. Um, We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about, um, after people receive these much-needed treatments, how they go about finding safe, stable housing. Um, You are listening to WHMP Panorama. I am Sarah Robertson, and we are speaking with Jerry Lund from the Opioid Task Force. Um, And Jerry was going to tell us about a study that is just getting underway in, I believe it's Greenfield and Montague and Orange, um, called the Healing Community Study. Do you want to tell us about that? Oh, certainly. Um, yeah, the HCS, the Healing Community Study, is a national study started way back in 2018. Seems like a long time ago. Um, it's a four-year study. It's part of the HEAL initiative. Let's be clear here. H-E-A-L, HEAL, uh, Help End Addiction Long-Term is the alliteration. Um, it was organized and, and funded by National Institute of Drug Abuse under Nora Valkel and uh, BSAS, the Bureau of Substance uh, and Mental Health Services, all both in D.C., are the ones who helped organize it. So starting in September 2018, there are four states in the country, New York, Massachusetts, um, Ohio, and Kentucky, that received funding for this four-year study is a lot of funding. The overall appropriation was almost a half a billion, that's B billion dollars, divided in four states. It's about $94 million for each of the four states, plus 
all the rest. The healing community study that I'm speaking about, which is part of the overall HEAL initiative, is essentially a study that's focused on developing community-driven strategies to deal with the opiate crisis in each, each of these states. The structure, the way it works is that, and Mass is a good example, in the state of Massachusetts there were 16 communities uh, that were selected out of the 361 in the state to take part in this study. The study was divided into two parts, into, you'll call it wave one and wave two in time. So the idea, this is, this is an academic study as well as a practical study. So the wave one communities were essentially the first tier of communities to, uh, to get funding and to organize themselves and get support uh, from HCS folks at Boston Medical Center. The whole thing is in Massachusetts run out of Boston Medical Center. So the wave one process was eight, 18 months. It involved interventions, developing strategies, um, and meeting together every month with the rest of the state folks who are part of the study. So wave two, the second tranche, is now uh, just begun as of July 1st in our area. So we, it was interesting. Almost all the wave two communities were, were rural communities, and this was a random, randomly selected. It just happened that way. The only one out here, the only community out here was Holyoke, which was um, part of the wave one group. So Franklin, including Montague, Greenfield, Athol, and Orange, is the uh, study, is, is the group that I'm part of. I'm the community advisory board representative for the Franklin part of the healing community study. Meet every month. And the idea is really to develop community-led intervention strategies that are science-based and that are focused on two sorts, three, three sorts of areas, actually. Um, what, the one area that, that uh, I'm going to mention right now is something called increasing overdose education and naloxone distribution, or OEND as abbreviation. It's an evidence-based practice, along with uh, the other objective is to increase access to medications for opioid use disorder, or MOUD, and uh, to increase safer opioid prescribing and dispensing practices. All three of those things are sort of the part of the triad of top priority. So that's a little bit about it. I won't get any more detail. We're just beginning our active involvement with around 130 or so uh, folks in the area who are involved in the opiate um, intervention uh, effort locally. Chair, can you, can you tell us a little bit about the interventions that are planned for a little bit that are science-based that you mentioned? Yeah, you spent a lot of time thinking about these things and doing studies. So what are some of the insights? One of the key things that keeps coming up in our meetings, all the uh, task force meetings, is the issue of local housing issues, uh, the local housing shortage or missing in action, actually. The issue with housing has been, it just keeps coming into the discussion no matter what, where, whether you're talking about folks getting treatment, getting, re, getting going through a residential program, then, you know, well, the standard procedure is to go through, uh, for a person who's going to starting treatment at the front end, is to go th to acute treatment services, ATS, then on to, uh, to uh, uh, stabilization services, clinical stabilization, which is on the order of a 14-day of a program. ATS is like five days detox, 14 days for CSS. And then there's 
so-called TSS, Trans Transitional Support Services, which runs for, if it's available, if it's available, for two to four weeks. But at the when you get out of, go through that process, if you make it through that, that, that pipeline, then the next issue, which is probably the biggest obstacle, is the availability of residential treatment services, or a so-called halfway house, which would last, ideally, for four to six months, or even longer. Then, if you are lucky enough to be able to score a position in a residential facility, after that four to six months, you would hopefully be able to find a sober home. Sober home is essentially a, a housing where a person is expected to work and contribute to the house, but is free of all substances, both alcohol and opiates. And then from there, further downstream, there's, there's uh, intensive outpatient facilities like CSO, uh, CSO has in Greenfield. And, um, and, and that, would, that would get you through the pipeline. Most people never make it that far. What's so, the what's the biggest barrier? Well, there, there's, oh, there's, there's, there's one of the biggest barriers. One of the biggest barriers. I'll have to say there's really two. And I have to, to be honest with you, it's something that we've been talking about for years. But the other the other hand, if there's a right hand and left hand to, to dealing with opiate addiction, on one hand, it's the treatment. The second, the the physical treatment, the the the, the places to live, the the the, the drugs you're either getting or not getting, the, 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 the psychological counseling that you're, you're, you're hopefully availing yourself of, is the mental health part. Mm. And the mental health, um, the behavioral health, we'll call it, is, is a huge part of the disruption of a person's life in opiate addiction, and we just don't have that treatment available. Um, I won't go into it, but the state of Massachusetts, back in February of 21, uh, issued a white paper, or actually the title was the roadmap for um, uh, mental health, uh, behavioral health treatment in the state of Massachusetts. A long document that 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 it's just an amazing document to read. I can't believe to this date we're you know a year and a half down the road, not much has been done with this. But it's an acknowledgement by the state and by the Department of Public Health and health and human services at the state level is that we just do not have in our state the ability to deal with folks who are struggling with addiction and their co-occurring mental health issues. Mm -hmm. That's a key word, co-occurring, and I'd like to emphasize that. Um, anybody who has addiction has other mental health issues as well. About 80 to 90% do. So, mm -hmm. um, and that's been known, known for a long time but it ain't dealt with. Can you talk a little bit about the socioeconomic factors that contribute to the opiate addiction as well? Just living in rural communities, not having necessarily access to, well, you talked about treatment centers, but what about uh, jobs, other issues like that that are going on that are probably also feeding into a lot of the crisis that you're talking about? It's and, modulated by, by the issue of stigma. So yeah. you mentioned jobs. Well. Yeah. So one of the first things we did in our Housing and Workforce Development Committee at the task force was to, to try to come up with a list of employers who would, put, would be willing to put themselves on a list, list as recovery-friendly employers. Mm -hmm. In other words, wow. these are employers who don't, aren't, aren't going to stigmatize a, a job, a person looking for a job who's had opiate treatment, who is still struggling, who's in some form of recovery. Stigma, it's the 
it's the bad thing that's always out there. It's, it's kind of this black hand that raises itself and swats at us when we're not paying attention. It really, really, really is a huge issue. Here's an example. So my daughter, who um, has struggled and still struggles with OUD, had an apartment in Greenfield, on the middle of Greenfield on Chapman Street, and um, was evicted during the eviction, mor- the eviction moratorium. Um, took, took the landlord to court. Landlord turned around, backed down, realized that he'd violated the law, and um, let her back into her apartment. I paid the rent, so it wasn't an issue of, of this landlord not getting paid. But um, when the lease was up, he absolutely drew a line in the sand and said that you have to move. I'm not going to re-up. I'm not going to allow you. I'm not going to allow you to stay in my apartment. Not because she wasn't doing her part of the bargain. It was because she was a drug user. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's stigma, and it's a huge, huge issue that affects everybody, mm-hmm. even within families. Um, so, Jerry, we were just talking about a really difficult situation that your own daughter was put in. Um, after nearly losing her apartment during the pandemic. And it just makes me think of how difficult it is for people with any sort of history of eviction or any sort of criminal history to get an apartment in the first place. And that just compounds this issue that we have of people trying to get into recovery and find stable living situations. So I don't know if you want to talk a bit about how these barriers get in people's way who are just trying to live healthy lives. Yeah, thank you for that that point. Um, I guess I'll uh, use an example for as my answer. My daughter did, um, in her odyssey with addiction, one of the places she spent some time was the Franklin County House of Correction, the jail in Greenfield. It was not her choice, obviously, but she had a seven-month stay at the House of Correction. And in that seven months, she got, strangely enough, probably the best treatment uh, for her addiction uh, that she had received to to that point in her life. She was on medicated-assisted treatment uh, with uh, daily doses of Suboxone. But more importantly, down the road when she got near the end, or even during the entire seven-month period, uh, the jail has in place an amazing release and pre-release program that has been self-built by our jail, strategizing begins from the time the person walks through the front door of the jail. During the entire time they're there, they are availed of all sorts of, of not only medication-assisted treatment, but also allowed uh, and encouraged to work on developing their recovery. So that when they are released, they are released with a sense, a better sense of confidence and ability to cope than they, than certainly than when they went in. The other part of it is that the staff, um, literally, uh, this woman who was, her name is Jen, uh, took Katie around after she, when she was released for two days after her release, driving her everywhere to, to get medical appointments, sign up for the community health center, become a patient, to uh, go and look for a job, doing interviews, on, uh, um, setting up interviews for jobs, also to... Um, to deal with the fact that, that she had to find her, foot, her footing again. And it was important that, um, that the jail made it clear to her, the treatment folks at the jail, 
release program folks said, you know, you can come back. You can talk to us. You don't have to be in jail to be in touch with us. Uh, and that was huge in terms of her transition. So I have to say, in terms of car the carceral population, who usually don't get that kind of treatment, she was very, very fortunate. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll say with that is that the jail has received a lot of attention and awards for this, all the, the way they are helping people transition um, to, to the outside world. I mean, people may not know, most folks would not know this, but the, the, the actual risk to a person who is released from jail or prison is about 80 times, that's eight zero times as high for, for a fatal OD as the, as the rest of the population. Mm -hmm. So it's a very high risk, very sensitive time. So if they get that support, um, they not only can stay alive, but they can actually begin to work on their recovery outside. So that's, that's really important. I also wish that we had those investments made in systems outside of incarceration. Right. I mean, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be you get incarcerated, then you get the services that you need. It just seems counterintuitive. Irony piled on top of irony. irony it, is, yeah. it, is, it is crazy. And that jail um, basically has proven that this actually, I mean, there's a study just done a couple of months ago where it compared uh, the recidivism rates in our jail with the Hampshire County Jail. The recidivism was reduced to a value of about 30 percent. Wow with this kind of quality treatment available within the Franklin County House. And obviously, there's similar, similar uh, offenders. So. We're talking to Jerry Lund here from Franklin Regional Council of Government Planning Board and board member of the Community Health Center of Franklin County and a member of Opiate Task Force. You mentioned to us that there has been a study of um, the unhoused population in Franklin County. Do you want to tell us a bit about what you found out? Do you work on that? Sure. I think the thing that you're referring to is the annual point-in-time count. It's a census done every year, once a year, um, in February. This year it was 23 February. Um, of the total number of folks in the three counties of Hampshire, Franklin, and Berkshire who are experiencing homelessness, the total number of people experiencing homelessness. And there are other two other categories. There are totally unsheltered people. And other, these are people literally on the street or in campsites who are you know, fending for their own, on their own. There are those who are uh, other, others who are experiencing homelessness who may be crashing with friends or temporarily with uh, uh, temporary facilities. Uh, and then there are families um, as well, more than one person uh, also experiencing homelessness. So um, I just share right off the top, the recent, st the recent stats show that in the total of all three counties, Hampshire, Franklin, and Berkshire, there are 572 people in total experiencing homelessness. Of that 572, 142 people are people in families, part of families that are experiencing homelessness. Um, 430 people experiencing homelessness who are individuals. Um, they're usually couch surfing or finding ways to be sheltered, but they are sheltered temporarily. Um, and then there are 67 folks who are literally in the woods or on the street, depending on time of day and the temperature. It's an amazing figure. The general results, I just categorized the sort of three different results, um, kind of summarizing 
Number one, and it's not surprising, there seems to be a dr dramatic increase in chronic homelessness in 2022. And in addition, for the first time since the influx of families arrived in our area following Hurricane Maria in 2018, we are seeing an increase, not a decrease, but an increase in fam family homelessness, um, going the wrong direction there. Mm -hmm. And there are considerable, the third thing is there are considerable racial disparities between the general population and those who are experiencing homelessness on the night of the count, especially amongst families. That's called the point in time count. It's a very valuable um, index for what's going on in the homeless population. Hmm. Right, and, and in your work on the opioid task force, you guys are kind of looking at solutions to this problem. So what, what, what have you guys identified as ways to address this, these increases? Absolutely, uh, so we have a, a, what we call a task force on housing and workforce development. And we've had that since the beginning of the task force back in 13, well, not, yeah, close to the beginning, near its founding in 2013. But in the last number of years, uh, with all, all the other committee meetings and, and, and activities, we've, we've just come to realize, continually realize, every meeting now, uh, there are issues with housing that play a key, uh, almost a pivotal role in the ability for folks to find a recovery, a meaningful recovery with their opiate addiction. Therefore, we've gotten involved, myself and others have gotten involved in a number of work group, working groups in our county and in re the regional area too on, on the housing issue. So I would say that we have focused, in Franklin County, we've focused on the high-risk homeless folks, particularly in the cold weather. You know, two years ago, we had an encampment on the on the in the town common <laughs> in Greenfield mm. with folks in tents pointing out that mm. there's all these folks who were homeless and the, the city wasn't doing anything about it. Um, it got a lot of attention and it did serve to focus the, the political folks on, on the issue in a way that otherwise they wouldn't have or didn't. Consequently, there are a number of groups, probably four or five groups who are now working on this, uh, on the homelessness or on the, on the housing issue, not just homelessness, but on the housing issue. On the homelessness issue, I just described the point in town count, but we have a local committee that's dealing with emergency shelter. In the last year, last season of the cold weather, we focused on developing resources to provide people with outside protection. Dozens and dozens of tents, sleeping bags, sleeping mats, developed a series of locations that would provide food, um, Stone Soup Cafe and others that, that moved into that niche so that folks had some place to go for nutrition. And that was, that was a multi, a very big effort. Um, and it's caused us to step back and realize that we really need to push the state in that direction to do a better job state, statewide in funding, making funding available for f folks who are totally unsheltered. That's one group. We have something called the Small Town Housing Working Group. Um, it's run out of FERCOG by Andrea, Andrea Donlan. We're looking at things like wh why is it that we have apparently fewer and fewer rentals available for folks and what's going on with that? So one of the studies we've done is we looked at the short-term rental market in Franklin County. In the last, oh, let's see, almost three years, 
we've seen a 40%, 47% increase in uh, short-term rentals in Franklin County alone. Now, those can be either Airbnb or other forms. They can be bed and breakfasts and stuff like that. It can also be hotels and, and, and that, that sort of thing. Not a lot of hotel expansion locally, so much of that is short-term rentals for Airbnb type of situations. The way that breaks down in our area, in Franklin County, is about 44% of those short-term rentals are in West County, out near Shelburne, um, Buckland. About 31% of those towns uh, who are seeing these increases in short-term rentals are towns abutting the Connecticut River. In other words, mm -hmm. there's a tourist aspect to it. Mm -hmm. Towns are Charlemont, Greenfield, Montague, Shelburne, and Deerfield. Um, Franklin County has a housing gap of about 1,232 units, or about 4% of the total housing units. I, I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit more about this housing crisis and what the state government and the private sector and nonprofits can do specifically. Is it, does it involve increased spending in affordable housing? Is it changing in zoning laws to expand what a housing option is? Is it all of the above? Do we throw the kitchen sink at it? And tell us a little bit about that. I'd go what for you think? A, a couple kitchen sinks. Yeah, no, it's all, <laughs> all, all of the above for sure. So, you know, I, my, in my past, I was a contractor, you know, a uh, builder. And I have to say that for the most part, both my own personal experience and just looking around and seeing things, I, um, there's been a, many contributing factors. Main, the, the principal factor is we are not, we haven't built enough dwellings for folks. But it's also true that, that any incentivizing to deal with a short, medium, or longer-term housing crisis involves uh, creating multiple units as more and more people want to live near uh, a, a town with facilities, with being able to shop. Um, as people get older, they may not be as mobile. Um, they, they have to, if they're going to go shopping, they often have to have a car. Some people can't afford that. So so it really is important to, to increase um, multiple unit dwellings. Mm. There have been serious zoning issues with that. Um, a lot of towns have uh, argued against uh, accessory dwelling units being allowed. A conversion of a garage even is something that um, was discriminated against big time mm -hmm. for a long time. It still is. But, um, and, 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 and Greenfield just dealt with this, by the way, in the last year, uh, where the, an ADU bylaw was passed by the town that allowed a detached dwelling unit, not just an at attached, but a detached dwelling unit. There was opposition to that and created quite a storm. And there are issues with who owns it. Can it be separated? The owners be somebody other than the original owner of the house the property the house is on, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So there, there, there are some glitches. But the fact is that we're moving in the right direction. And people are realizing that it's very important to incentivize this. Mm. Another thing is, is in some parts of the, of the country, people may know there's these things called tiny houses. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine lives in Portland, Oregon. And Portland, Oregon has been big on tiny homes to the point that they have created small developments of exclusively tiny homes. There are other uh, approaches like Santa Barbara's pallet houses um, in California. So, so there's, there's a national housing crisis here. There's a local housing crisis, and of course, there's at the state level as well. 
There's also uh, a possibility under a new mass law to, uh, to assess community impact fees that communities, individual communities, can do up to, uh, up to a 3% tax for a transfer of an occupancy of a, either a professionally managed unit of more than two units in the same town. And 35% of any uh, fees that are raised in that, in that fashion must be, must be dedicated to either uh, a more affordable housing or to a related infrastructure projects. So there's, there's, there's been some changes. And there's going to be another pool of money going to help communities, not just in regards to housing, but to recover from the impacts of the opioid epidemic from the, the settlement with the Sackler family. I know that um, Franklin County is getting something like $2.16 million from that, and the FERCOG might have a, a say in how that's distributed. Um, do you see that helping in regards to housing, or um, how would you like to see that money used? Well, that's a good question. The uh, the, the actual the settlement money, as I understand it, um, at least the focus what I've from what I've seen so far is money that actually is not from the Sackler settlement. It's from okay. the uh, distributor settlement. In other words, all the pills that the Sackler crew under pharma produced had to be gotten out to the real world, and there are these large corporations that did the distribution. That includes McKesson. Cardinal Health and a third one and, and Johnson and Johnson and Johnson and Johnson yep. for sure, mm -hmm. and there are so the four that um, I think relate to this particular pot of settlement money are those distributors. Finally, okay. uh, in terms of that money, there is significant amount of money when it's added up, but the problem, of course, is that uh, a tiny it's distributed based on per capita uh, 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 town size. So, like Monroe bridge up on the top of the mm -hmm. Berkshires is due $216. Um, so as part of the healing community study, I, I would say as, as an individual, again, it's not, not anybody's policy here, that I would argue that the healing community study that's starting right now could have a group that sits down with towns and their select boards and collectively make some decisions about how to best use this money collectively. Mm. If somebody wants to get in touch with the Opiate Task Force, wants to reach out, has comments, suggestions, or if they need help, who do they reach out to? Where can they go? That's an excellent question, and it's a simple one, but it's hard, it's hard for me to answer because it, there's so many needs, and, and it's so different. If you live in Wendell, if you live in uh, West County, if you live in Greenfield, it's a common question, maybe it has a common answer, but... To be to be blunt, the, the best place to go is 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 to go to um, an organization that will help um, help you address your your issue, which means basically your health care provider. Mm -hmm. And um, if you don't have insurance, most many people don't. My own son doesn't. Um, sign up with a community health center. Mm -hmm. Uh, Franklin, Franklin County has, we're lucky enough to have, uh, and my late wife, Dr. Sarah Kimball, uh, founded it back in 1997 for the very reason we had no place to go. Mm. And so that's where I would start. I would go to my provider, the healthcare provider, um, or if it's a child in your family, um, start there. And there are, uh, in Franklin County and in Hampshire County, I think, and I know less about Berkshire, but there are places that the, the health center can refer you to that can give, give you serious help. Mm. Um, and then 
and, and that's that's a good place to start. And then how about if you want to help people who are recovering from opioid addiction or who are seeking housing and you want to support the organizations helping them? Absolutely. So the place to go there is are the recover the recover project in in Greenfield. Um, uh, uh, Maybe Stone Soup Cafe, like you mentioned. Well, before. Stone yeah. Soup Cafe in 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 in, in Greenfield as well. Um, Hampshire Hope down in in, in uh, Hampshire County. They have a whole bunch of folks who are, will help you with achieving recovery, finding the treatment you need, um, listening to your to to what you're dealing with and offering you support. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jerry. You have been listening to WHMP's Panorama. I'm Sarah Robertson. I'm Dan Torres. Um, and we are speaking with Jerry Lund from the Opioid Task Force of Franklin County in the North Quabbin region about housing and health care in the greater Franklin County region and what we can do to fix it. Thank you. <laughs>